6 this morning. We'll look at verses 1 through 7. about as far as we'll make it, one through seven. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this morning. Thank you for these dear people, Lord, the body of Christ. How blessed we are to be here this morning together to learn more of your sovereign work in redemptive history, to see how your grace was was unfolding in the early church and how they stood against opposition of the enemy. And uh, help us to understand more of that so we may stand strong together, united in Christ, um, for your glory, the good of your name, and the good of your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint To this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, here we are in Acts 6, which begins a uh, really what is the second major portion of Acts where we're going to be, we see an advance being made here, an advance in the early church. And the advance um, for which we will see in the coming weeks is the evangelization um, of Gentiles. And here, the church is focused, or Luke is focused in the church of Jerusalem, made up of two groups, You have uh, Hebrews, um, Aramaic-speaking Jews. Then you have the Hellenists, which were Greek-speaking Jews. This is what made up the church, at least here now at this point. And uh, the Greek-speaking Jews knew very little um, Hebrew or Aramaic. So here you have uh, these two categories of languages, these two categories of people, which has now... Um, an opportunity for, for Satan to cause what within the church? Division. 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 Now, uh, Satan has already strategized to use hypocrisy within the church. So God killed Ananias and Sapphira. And you wonder um, how long of stretch of time there is between um, 
what happened in Acts 5 and what's going on here in Acts 6. Uh, we're not told. Um, th- this could have been just a number of weeks. It could have been a number of months. It could have been upward of a year. Um, but Satan has thus far um, failed to bring the church to its knees through the incident of Ananias and Sapphira, as well as the, the outward opposition that they've faced uh, by way of the Sanhedrin. So here the church is still standing strong, amen? And now, notice the text says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. This is the divide and conquer strategy of the enemy within the church, to divide and conquer. You divide the people, you usually will conquer, at least from the perspective um, of the enemy. So he's uh, used that approach more than once in the ministry, in the life of the church, historically, throughout redemptive history. You go all the way back to Moses in his ministry. We, we still see, we see this, where, where division and animosity and resentment and accusation and bitterness and grumbling rises up from within the people of God. It's all too common, it's all too sad, and it's continually ridiculous to this very day. And here it all happens over a group of widows. The most sensitive of all the various groups within anybody uh, would be the widows. It's a clever strategy here. Very, very clever on, on behalf of the enemy here. So at least the church is thought to be seen as as neglecting this most sensitive group. And this would certainly uh, rise um, emotion within certain people within the body. Um, Widows were in a difficult position in this day. It's not like today. In this day, in the first century, the chance of remarriage for a widow was, was very slim. Uh, their income was probably zero. There were no government handouts in this day. There was no aid as we have in ours. So this was a very common problem in the early church. And here uh, there were the material needs um, apparently being neglected to this group of Hellenistic uh, widows, the Greek-speaking sect. So as food was being distributed day by day to care for their needs... Um, a new kind of ministry would develop here. But this isn't new to the first century church, beloved. Where does this go back to? What, what is being done here in caring for the widows was instruction that God gave to Moses, to the nation of Israel, that his people, God's people, were, were bound to care for widows. You know, you recall the story of Naomi and Ruth when we studied Ruth. Naomi, where was she from? She's an Israelite, and uh, she married a man who, who led them off into Moab. That was a huge mistake. Nevertheless, God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, used the incident of her husband dying and Ruth's husband dying There they were, helpless, seemingly hopeless, and they go back to Israel where they know they would be cared for to some degree. So this has always been in the cards. This has always been 
um, God's plan. This is nothing new. James, in chapter 5, he tells us that pure religion consists of what? Caring for widows and orphans. Nothing new. James is simply telling us that this New Testament church actually has its ethical roots in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. You know, it's interesting that Jesus, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, known as the, uh, also the mini-apocalypse, um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, um, he talks there in context of judgment that it will be given on the, conf- on, on the basis of conformity to mercy ministry. And he says, when, when his uh, disciples inquire of him, what, what do you mean by this? He simply said, as much as you did it to the least of one of these, you did it unto me. Even a cup of cold water, Jesus says. So this is simply the fruit um, of being saved. Amen? This is the fruit of being saved. This is not a method to get saved, but the fruit of one who's in Christ. Now, here in the first century, there was most likely an underlying prejudice here. An underlying prejudice. These Grecian uh, Jews didn't get along with the, with the Hebraic Jews. Um, those who spoke Hebrew and lived in Palestine looked at um, the other Jews who were Greek-speaking and from surrounding regions. They looked at them typically as second-class religious citizens. So you had some of this going on. So you, you take that and you mix in with it a lack of communication. What do you have? Potential trouble. When you don't understand someone very well, it leads to nothing but mystery oftentimes. You know, when you don't know a culture's ways, you can be doing something that is so nice and gracious and it can be interpreted as being um, anything but that. An offense. You know, we, our own daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law comes from uh, uh, Moscow. When we first met her, we tried to show her hospitality in a certain way to her culture was offensive. It was really bizarre. It was the strangest thing. But here, you know, uh, I think we see a lot of that. And so this complaint, it says the complaint arose against. We don't want to miss that. Against. Did you catch it? Notice the language. It's very interesting. But because the complaint is not initially, hey, hey, we're not getting our food. That's part of the complaint, but that's not what they're saying here. Most specifically, they're complaining against the other party. How often does that happen in the church? You point the finger. Hey, 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 you know, I've been doing this for so long, and, but look at them. Come on, are you serious? So this church has already begun to split into two sectionists, into two sections, the, the, the Hellenists and, and, the, and the Hebraic uh, Jews division. It's become a us and them. It's, it's, a, it's a case of the reformed and the uninformed, basically. So there's actually a, race, a racial ethnic dimension um, to this, this division here. Make no mistake, Satan is at work and will continue to be at work within the church to divide and conquer. 
It's no wonder Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer. What did he pray? Look, Father, I pray that thee, they will be as one, just as you and I are. One. So that's the problem. In response, the apostles are now very wise in addressing the issue here at hand. They're going to nip the problem in the bud, suggesting a solution to the problem, not simply willing to ignore the problem. This is something that actually couldn't be ignored as far as life in the body goes. So when, when problems arise in the church, how should they be viewed? Seriously? And what's another way they should be viewed? Okay, there's a problem. You see it. You recognize it. Say it again, baby. Opportunity. For what? Solution. Resolution. It's easy to sit around and point, amen? To point and nag and complain. But we can use this as an opportunity rather than seeing it as a mere obstacle. That's what they did. So progress is made. When those who love to complain simply stop and provide solutions, they put hands to the problem. And they're able to use their gifts. And then progress can be made. So notice in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then in verse 4 he says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is a very practical response. If we're overworked, we find hands to help. Amen? We find hands to help. People to assist. And this decision is a great decision. It's great insight. It's, it's wonderful discernment. But it's not presented merely on the basis of pragmatism. This is something very practical. Here's a practical solution. The suggestion here is based even more importantly on the priority of ministry. Did you get that? The priorities of ministry. So here you have the 12. This, this is most likely the 11 minus Judas with the addition of who? Chapter 2, Matthias with Matthias. So these are the 12 uh, realizing here that the distribution of food on a day-to-day basis has caused them neglect. Neglecting what's referred to here as prayer and preaching. These are very weighty manners, amen? Weighty manners. Now, it's interesting. A lot, of, a lot of people read this and they interpret it as though the apostles weren't able to pray on behalf of the church, as though they, weren't, they were so busy they weren't able to pray at home or throughout the day for the body. But that's not what, that's not what this means. Um, in the Greek New Testament, the word prayer right there in verse 4 is preceded by an article that is... The prayer. The prayer. So it doesn't mean simply a neglection on behalf of the apostles to pray um, on behalf of the body. 
Uh, but th- this has more of a definite meaning towards public worship, public service, public order of service, if you will. Like what we're going to do this morning here in about 45 minutes, the order of service, leading the congregation in public worship. Saying, in essence, this, if we spend all day waiting on tables and serving the needs of the body, which indeed is very important, helping the needy, we will neglect our more primary calling. That is to preach and teach and lead the congregation in worship. F.F. Bruce put it like this, quote, Public worship and the preaching of the word were to be the two unassailable priorities of the apostles. As important as food is for life, the word and worship are even more important. Quote. So not only was this decision based on wise, a wise, you know, pragmatic you know, consideration to the problem at hand, it also points out the, the, the priority of spiritual nourishment that came by way of the apostles, leaders of the church. You know, a lot of pastors aren't, like I'm, just for me personally, in this body, I'm very blessed. Because this body understands that. This body gets and is blessed to understand what a lot of bodies don't. A lot of bodies expect their pastor to do everything. Even when he's not gifted to do everything. The last thing you want me doing is anything administrative, really. R.C. Sproul said this. He goes, and I quote, Every year, 17,000 ministers in America leave the ministry. A primary reason is that ministers in the modern church are, are not encouraged, equipped, enabled, or allowed to devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. As a result, we have raised up a generation of pastors who are jack-of-all-trades, masters of none. And one of the reasons why they do not open the Word of God for the congregation on Sunday morning with any depth is that they do not know how. They have spent all their time learning everything else but the texts of Scripture. End quote. So true. Hear, hear. As sad as it is. So one of the roles of an elder or a leader in the church is the art of delegation. This is what we see. Delegating responsibility to others who who are gifted and who are willing to serve. In other words, those we recognize as being servant-minded. This is what they did. Spiritually mature as well is, is one of the qualifications. So apparently up to this point, the apostles were the ones doing this important task. But it hindered them from doing that which was more important. That's what's in view. And there's others who are able to do this work, if not better than them. Can we get a hearty amen to this? Amen. So as we read the text carefully, this isn't just like a special summons on the part of the preachers. Okay? In other words, it's easy for any, anybody who preaches to say, yeah, here, here, I should just need to be focused on studying and preaching and leading 
the body. But notice, in verse 5, what does it say? And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They got it. The whole church thought this was a good idea. See, we live in a day and age where people want to shorten prayer, shorten preaching, shorten the time of corporate worship. We talked about this Thursday night. But that was not the case in the first century. You know, in and out in an hour, man. Sermonette for Christianettes. No, they were adamant. Prayer and preaching came before even mercy ministry, as important as mercy ministry is. And then it was met with approval of the people. So it brings about, we see renewed harmony here taking place. Amen? Renewed harmony between the leaders um, and the church. But as is always the case, when things go wrong and people complain, when people begin to grumble or grumbling breaks out within the church, it's usually pointed out, and those that are singled out are? Who is it? Leadership. Thank you. The apostles are apparently being grumbled about in this setting. Right? A dispute arose against another group. You're neglecting us as you serve them. Well, they were the ones doing it, so the complaint was against this group as the leadership was neglecting this group, or apparently, at least to them. This is a lesson for anyone in church leadership. If you're not thick-skinned, you will die in ministry. You will die. So people are pleased with this response. They're not complaining anymore. And now the focus turns to select. Okay, here they are moving along. Here's the problem. They see the problem as a problem. They have ears to hear. They see it as an opportunity to delegate responsibility to others within the body. So they're moving forward within this, with, with this. They deal with the problem at hand. And then the proposal, verse 3, Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we'll, we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles are the recognized authority here. They had the right to appoint, and here ask the people to identify those who are already had the characteristics of service. They said, point out to us those that are faithful. Those who are Spirit-filled those who have godly character, those who have wisdom to be appointed, to be selected. Now, I know that some people here <clears throat> see this, uh, see that uh, this is actually the office of the, 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 the uh, diaconate, uh, the, the office of deacon here. It's really not. Um, this totally serves as the basis for it, no doubt about it. Um, there's, there's something of the shaping of what would eventually become the office of deacon, for which Paul provides much more clarity, specification, um, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus. Um, the, the, the word for, for deacon isn't actually used here in the verb form. We find it two places in, in the noun form in this text. 
Um, so, in other words, they were certainly doing the, 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 the deacon-like um, service here. Um, many scholars will look at this. If you teach on the role of deacon from this text, they'll shake your, their head and they'll say, you're teaching truth, but you're simply teaching it from the wrong text. I disagree with that. I, I think, no doubt, um, there's not a specific role for deacon here, but we certainly see the foundation for it being formed here. I think we can agree with that. Amen. So the actual division here within the body um, is being dealt with. Something very practical is being done to meet the very specific need at hand. So this is just a result of, of a solution to the problem as hands are put to work. And I do believe that it serves as a model um, for, for the role of deacon. A lot of people come to this and they see this as the role of deacon, and they say, therefore, deacons should be chosen from among the body. Well, I think the best ones to see and discern those who are, are spirit-filled, who have character, are, are the leadership um, within the church. So, bottom line here, they become participants that are qualified. Participants that are qualified. Ordained, if you will, to serve within the body of Christ. I think that's the model we see from this. Now, we see in here Stephen and Philip, who we know were much more than just deacons within the church. How did they serve, most specifically? What were they? Preachers. They were evangelists. Okay, um, we'll see um, Stephen soon after this, who, who will serve as the uh, first martyr of the church. Philip, we'll see him again in chapter 8, and then we'll see him again in chapter 21, most specifically uh, um, being used in, in the role of evangelist, preaching the gospel. So these men are listed basically as number one and number two in this list. Full of the Spirit, they had godly wisdom, and the other five we know very little about. Very little about them. We know Nicholas was a native of Antioch. How do we know that? Well, most likely because the author, Luke, was also from Antioch, and perhaps he knew him or something. But we don't know much other than their character, which is key. Okay, seven men characterized by the presence of the Spirit, and who have wisdom. Notice that the church isn't politically correct. Hey, we, we, need, you know, we need to keep everybody toned down. We need three guys from this area and four guys from this area to balance it out. Do they do that? No. No. You know, or, or you know, three white guys and four black guys or whatever. Right? The church doesn't operate like that. Men that are full of the Spirit, who have wisdom, these are who we're looking for. So not just anybody can do this, amen? The, the, the need is for the highest spiritually qualified. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, to carry out the task. You know the word deacon? What does it mean? Serve. Servant. That's what it means. In a sense, we're all deacons, amen? We're all deacons. Deaconettes, if you will. 
within the body of Christ. But they are those that are specifically recognized within the body in that particular role. And we see it more specifically um, laid out um, in 1 Timothy. He gives the role of the elder, qualifications for an elder. And, and then in, in 1 Timothy 3, he says, Deacons likewise, in the same manner, must be dignified. That means serious, about serious things. Not double-tongued, saying one thing to one group and another to another group. Not a drunkard, addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then their wives, or the women, can be interpreted as women, likewise must be dignified, serious in mind and character, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Faithful in all things to the body. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So that's the deacon. Verse 3, back in Acts, he says, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Again, the qualifications laid out here in Acts would provide the groundwork of qualification for what we just read in 1 Timothy, which will come years later. I think there's a great connection there. Steve? I believe so. And you know, what is wisdom? What is it to have wisdom? Now, I know a lot of guys, and I've met a lot of guys over the years, who have a head full of knowledge. Just fill, overflowing with knowledge. Is that wisdom? No, that is not wisdom. What is wisdom? Proper application of the knowledge. You can know all kinds of stuff and be a spiritual um, infant, right? Knowledge what? Puffs up. Knowledge alone puffs up. But, you know, wisdom ultimately is the result of obedience to the Word of God. You possess in turn wisdom by following in the Word of God. So this is, this is uh, how the problem was resolved. And we're running out of time, but, but notice here there's a, there's a postscript of this account. Acts 6 and verse 7. And the word of God... So, okay, here it is. Here's the problem. You've got division within the church. Satan tries to use it and magnify it. He, he just loves churches to split. Always has. He loves to divide allegiance, always has, goes all the way back to Israel. Remember when they were complaining, right? Any complaints usually come against leadership. When Israel's wandering in the wilderness, who did they complain against? Moses. Who did people complain against? The great apostle of all time, Paul, complaints, railing against this man over and over again. So here's the problem. 
they go, hmm, let's look at this. You know what? We're, we're pretty busy tending to the needs of these widows. We can't be doing this because we're neglecting our greater call. Preaching and teaching, proclaiming, heralding, leading the body. So, wow, there's seven brothers right there. Seven brothers, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Let's delegate this to them so that we can tend to what we need to tend to. And they did it. The body approved of it. The result? The word of God continued to increase. Why did it continue to increase? Because they were able to preach it and teach it. And the body was, was working together in a healthy way. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So God's blessing was on the church, amen? And I can't help but to think that, that Luke wants us to see the cause and effect here. And, you know, what were these onlookers in Jerusalem thinking, the unbelievers? What were they thinking is, is, the, is, the, is the church was testifying to the grace and the power of God through Christ Jesus, His Son, His Messiah, their Messiah, and then how the church was ministering to one another, proclaiming the truth, heralding the truth, serving the practical needs of the body. This is the kind of church you want to be a member of. Amen? So the work of deacon is indispensable, beloved. We have faithful deacons here. I'm not going to name any names right now. But it doesn't matter when I get here, uh, especially on a Sunday. Things are already done. Things are already in place. Things are already being taken care of. Or leave, however late I leave. Someone's here to see that everything gets wrapped up. That's service, man. That's a blessing. And, and, and everybody serves in one capacity or another. But, but this work, there's no glamour and glitz to this role of deacon. Amen? And I think I've told you before, the greatest deacon I've ever met or seen in action was my father, my dad. Faithful deacon. He's not a theologian. He doesn't teach. He's a deacon, servant, doesn't care if anybody sees him or not. But he taught me that. He used to drag me with him to serve. And remember one time I was in, was I in high school, and a group of cars of girls, popular girls, saw me serving at the church on a hillside. I think I was pulling weeds as led by my dad. And they were like, hey, John, leader. And they started kind of laughing. And, and my dad goes, does that, does that embarrass you? <laughs> I was like, uh, which it did. But he was asking, does, does serving the Lord here at the church, they see you at the church, does that embarrass you? And of course, I said no, but, but yeah, I was. Mainly because I wasn't saved yet. I hadn't been born again. But he led in this, he led like this, like faithful servant. So our responsibility in the church, beloved, a little point of application, isn't simply to sit back and address certain needs, amen? Pointing out problems. But to address the cause of the need. 
That's how we serve together. That's what we learn from this. And then we assist to, to provide the solution. That's how we ought to do it. You think about this. A lot of times deacons, in speaking to the body, uh, people may come and they may visit, or even people from within the, the body itself, will, will, will come to the deacons because they have a need. And I've witnessed this a lot over the years, um, especially serving in, in uh, a larger um, church setting, that a lot of times people may come uh, because of uh, apparent poverty in their life. And poverty isn't always caused by circumstances beyond our control. Sometimes it is, amen? Sometimes one's poverty is because of their sin. And the more a deacon or someone within the body spends time watching and listening, they're able to discern because simply cutting a check to someone who's a terrible steward is not going to help them at all. You get the point? (laughs) It's not going to help them. Writing a check isn't always the answer to the problem at hand. So deacons kind of serve as a cushion between other leadership and the body to kind of discern, okay, where people are at and, and, and why this problem keeps reoccurring here in their life with the hopes of ministering to them, pointing them um, in the right direction. So deacons are typically tuned in with the body, are often able to discern and, and, and dispel uh, what, the, what the true need might be for the sake of correction and training, you know, stewardship, responsibility, and all that. So they serve a great, a great role. But here, the word of God continued to increase. The apostles were alleviated of this weight so they could tend to the study of the word. To proclaim this openly and publicly, you have to spend a lot of time um, in a chair. A lot of time. And, and, and then you can bring this, hopefully, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you have uh, the body assisting so that the word can be proclaimed. So the problem of complaining here was killed. And if you can kill the problem of complaining within the church, you keep the church from paralysis. Amen? The church will become paralyzed if all it does is sit and point fingers across the room like this. Can I get an amen? So in a healthy word, in a healthy church, God's word goes out faithfully. And it goes out in many ways. Not just the pulpit, right? It goes out from the pulpit, and it better go out from the pulpit. But it also goes out as you folks participate in small groups, as you folks get together with one another and have a cup of coffee at your kitchen table, the word goes out. Amen? The word is being, we're reminding one another of the truths. It can be in the living room. It can be in there in the fellowship hall, in your home. Uh, Homes where uh, groups are doing Bible studies. Wherever, man, this is what's going on. And uh, we see the, the body being sanctified in this, in this case. So verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient. Now that's something, isn't it? You know, when you read Josephus, the first century historian, he writes that at any one time in the first century, you could have found 5,000 priests at any given moment in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. That's amazing. 
apostate priests. Many of whom, or some at least, well, it says a great many, were coming to faith. So here we see the fruit of leadership, delegation, preaching, teaching, service, problem resolution, delegation, bearing fruit, creating like-mindedness. Amen? So problems here were seen as possibilities for service, not reasons to complain and divide. Much we can learn from this. Amen? And I do believe we have a body like this. Um, For the most part, no doubt. There's always going to be someone to complain. There's always going to be someone who sees any little thing as divisive. Take them here, amen? Take them here. Just redirect their thinking. Sometimes we gotta, we have to pull up the loins of our thinking and get our minds right. right? Because the enemy will always come in and attempt to divide and conquer. May we not give him a foothold. Amen? Comments, questions? In our remaining two minutes? Oh, verse 4. Uh, oh, the order. Of, I see what you're saying. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The prayer, again, um, ministering to the body corporately. Um, I think to be able to do that is to, to, to tend to the ministry of the word. I mean, even, even order of service and how we worship, which it should be scriptural, comes from the word itself. So unless you're studying this to know this, you can't even worship properly. So I don't think it's necessarily um, in order. But everything we know comes from the word of God, amen? And you can only know it if you, if you are sitting down and tending to it. Kind of like Ezra did. You know before the, the situation in Nehemiah 8, right? When they read the word proclaimed the truth, and he had six on his left and seven on his right, or maybe it was the other way around. I don't think it matters. Seven on one side, six on the other. He, he, he preached it, and then they went out among the people, and what they ask? Do you understand? Do you understand what has just been proclaimed? Do you understand the meaning of the word? So everything, I think, births from that, including um, our worship of the Lord. And that's why a lot, of, you know, a lot of churches get caught up in traditions that they've done for one, two, three, four, five, six hundred years and aren't necessarily derived from the Bible. That's why it's hard to break people to certain traditions if, if they're not from Scripture. So, anybody else? Rich text, eh? Very applicable. Father, we do thank you for um, the scripture, the living word. We thank you for all the, uh, the foibles of the early church. Lord, we see that uh, we, we are not removed from falling into any of the same type of problems or complaints, or railing against others. But Lord, help us learn from this as a testimony to your glory and your goodness and your kindness 
and your mercy uh, that we might minister accordingly uh, for the name of Christ our Savior. We do this by faith. We need strength to do this. We cannot do it on our own, but we praise you for the living word. Prepare our hearts for worship this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.